Hey, welcome back to Mountain Murders. Hey guys, how are you doing? You had a good week? Uh, it's been great. That doesn't sound like it's dripping with excitement. It's been so good. I'll be honest, this week has been kind of a struggle for me. Oh yeah? A little bit. Yeah. Okay. We've kind of had, we've kind of had like a, a weird week. It's been strange. So I'm really happy to get back to our podcast. Yeah, that's what uh, it's my happy place. It's my happy place. Talking about murder is my happy place, right? Yes, it it's is. It's just so fascinating. And, you know, last week we talked about the Lawson family murders. And before that, we had the uh, Peter London case. Yeah, old and Pete. And he was a serial killer out of Maggie Valley. And that was such a wildly popular episode. I mean, lots of people were interested yeah, in that. Yeah, old Pete had some legs. Well, you know, people were like, oh, I had never heard of this before. Well, I've got another serial killer you've probably never heard of. Really? Well, you haven't. You've been keeping this one from me. I don't even know what it's about. I know. So are you excited? I am. All right. So Leslie Eugene Warren. Ever hear of this guy? No, but I would immediately think he's probably a serial killer. Well, I'll tell you his mugshot. He has a pretty sweet mullet. Whoa. Did you, are you telling me it's a serial killer named Leslie Jean, Eugene Warren, and he has a mullet? Don't break my achy, breaky heart, baby. It's true. That's the, so damn Candler. The baby face killer. He is from Candler. No, you're <laughs> kidding me. I shit you not, sir. Okay. Okay, so let's get started. I have a lot of background on this guy, and I mean, yeah, you're going to be interested. This is a good one. The baby face killer. Yeah, and you probably never heard of him, right? I have not. From right over yonder in Candler. Okay. Okay, so October 15th, 1967, uh, Leslie Eugene Warren is born in Candler to Douglas Eugene Warren and Phyllis West. Um, I guess when he was about three, he had a brother, uh, Laren Ray, who was born. And during that time, um, he starts to become completely withdrawn from his parents. And he would later talk about his brother as being treated as the golden child by the parents. You know, and there's always that sibling rivalry. I mean, I really wouldn't know. There's such a huge age difference between myself and my brother that I didn't really grow. I kind of grew up more. I was like an only child, you know. So I don't really know about that sibling rivalry. But I see other kids and, you know, adults talk about, oh, you know, there's this perception like, oh, there's the favorite child or oh, yeah. or when I was a kid, my brother or my sister was treated so much better than, you know, and it's like, who knows? Because, you know, when you're a kid, you see things a certain way. Right. Like they would feed them, not feed me, not buy me any shoes, typical things like that. Well, I'm thinking oh. more, more stuff like, you know, my mom gives my brother an extra snack pack or something. I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know what I was talking about. It's crazy. <laughs> So anyway, this is like, you know, causing some issues and he already has a, a pretty dysfunctional home life. Um, from what I've understand, his father was an alcoholic. There was some domestic violence and that kind of stuff in the household. Dad was abusive, I believe, you know, toward Leslie, whatever. Um, so by the age of four, he witnesses his father setting fire to the family trailer. 
Wow. I mean, I hate to say it, but stereotypically, it just don't get any more mountainous than that. I don't know. Yeah, if I'm going to threaten someone, I'm like, you want to see your cat, two cats in your trailer again, don't you? Yeah, don't make me come over there and pop the wheels on your house. Yeah. That's my favorite one. Well, you, okay, so he's young, dysfunctional, abuse. And then witness this is pretty, like, this is pretty fucking traumatic to witness your father setting fire to your home. Yeah, yeah. so here not, we have a recipe for disaster yeah, coming. Yeah, not good, not good, causing some serious trauma. Well, his parents divorce when he's five, and his mom is granted sole custody and granted a restraining order, you know, to keep dad away. So he starts school. He goes to M Elementary School, and he was described as an average student. Um, later on, you know, it would be revealed his IQ is somewhere between like 115 and 125. So he's not a dumb guy. You know, pretty average IQ there. Mine's 300. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You guys, I mean, this is this is what life is like with this this fella here. Well, he started seeing a clinical psychologist when he was seven. Because he was getting into a lot of trouble. He had problems and, you know, stress at home, the trauma from childhood. Uh, teachers were like, you know, I think he needs some psychotherapy. So heading into like middle school and into those high school years, he's in therapy. And eventually, um, school officials, when he's 14, so this would have been like 1982, um, decide to withdraw Warren from Irwin High School, where he's, you know, a freshman. Wow, because of concerns. Yeah, he's getting into trouble. And not just the little things that kids might do at school, but he starts, like, writing extortion letters, threatening rape. I remember extorting a few teachers back in about fourth grade. You really, you were like, give me all your mechanical pencils or else. Yeah, I was like, yeah, I'm going to give up the dirt if you don't give me all your money. You're stupid. Oh. Why are you so stupid? Yeah, that is not normal. <laughs> That's a little beyond you, uh, teenage hygiene. Well, right. Then he had lots of continual encounters with police, vandalism. He was stealing guns and ammunition, breaking and entering. He's 14, and he's using cocaine, marijuana. So, okay. So, you know, he's, uh, he's living that party lifestyle, I guess. Well... After all of the extortion letters and all these problems sort of, you know, come to fruition, come to a head, whatever, he's referred to more psychological testing, more therapy, that kind of stuff. Wow, this sounds like before our mental health system was dismantled. Yeah. Hmm. Well, when he's in therapy, he finally gets a psychologist that diagnoses him with a conduct disorder and a schizoid personality disorder. And he's labeled as unsocialized with depressive features. I've never quite heard that phrase right there. Yeah. So he's in some psychotherapy. He's pretty intense program treatment, all that. And, you know, he's allowed to leave. Uh, these doctors tell him that, you know, he's fine, he's recovered, he can go back to school. And he was at Irwin High School. I guess they don't want him anymore. He transfers to Inca High School. And, you know, supposedly everything's okay. But he only spent 33 days at Inca. But during that time, he only attended like 10 days of school before eventually being withdrawn by school officials. Wow. Out of school. So there's a lot of other stuff going on, it sounds like. Yeah. So you got to keep in mind, he's 14. 
So in psychotherapy, getting kicked out of school. He's a little badass. Not showing up to school. Yeah, being a little punk ass. But this is where he kind of crosses a line into some really scary shit. So at the age of 14, this was in September of 1982, he pulls a revolver on his neighbor, a lady named Betty Presley. He tied her up in a basement. And whenever Presley's cousin came by, she, she, she was shot by a, a bullet that Warren, you know, I guess shot, shot a gun and grazed her. And yeah. So he tied her up, pulls a gun out. Yeah. Gets her into her basement, ties her up, and she ends up shot, essentially. Yeah, the cousin. Somehow. Yeah. Like if it was a graze or whatever. Yeah. And okay, so now what the hell is the little maniac doing now? Yeah. Well, during this time, you know, his mom's finding marijuana in his room. I mean, he is accepting responsibility for it. It's not like he's, oh, that's not mine. I mean, he's like, hell yeah, that's mine. He's like, where's my stash? Well, by the age of 15, he is placed in jail, Buncombe County Detention Center. And while he's there, he is attempted, um, you know, to hang himself, uh, tries to commit suicide. And so they transfer him over to the juvenile court system. And that's where he met a lady named Elizabeth Hurley. And she's going to come into play later. Um, But she's a counselor there, kind of works with this, you know, the juveniles. a I lot. thought that was the chicken weird signs. That's Kelly LeBrock. Oh. Yeah. I was way off. Yeah. Okay. So Elizabeth Hurley, um, she's going to come into play later, and she actually will be known as Jamie, which is, I guess, the name she goes by. So we'll get into that here in just a few minutes. So by 1985, when he's 18, he's finally released from the Juvenile Evaluation Center, and he moves back in with his mother and Candler. And, you know, he's just hanging out, whatever, not doing a whole lot. He joins the Army and begins basic training at Fort Benning in Georgia. How in the world did he make it past the, don't they do psychological screenings and such? No. No? No. Plus, it's a lot different now. I mean, you got to consider this was the 80s. That's true. And I think they were just like, hey, Uncle Sam wants you. Yeah. A few good warm bodies. So, joins the Army. He marries a girl named Tracy Bradshaw, and eventually he is um, part of the 10th Mountain Division, which is in Fort Drum in upstate New York. And so it's during this time that he's in New York that he allegedly met Patsy Vineyard at a bar, and this would have been May of 1987, and her husband was out of town. He was on some sort of like, you know, training kind of mission, was gone for a few days or whatever. And so they allegedly went to this abandoned barracks and Warren strangles her and then threw her body into the Black River near Sackett's Harbor. Is this his first kill? First murder, rather? Yeah. Okay. And so May 21st, 1987, Patsy's husband returned home and, you know, of course she wasn't there. He's freaking out. Where is she? Can't get her. Doesn't know where she is. So he reported her pretty quickly as a missing person. And Patsy Vineyard had come from Tennessee. She was the only one in her family to move away from the area when she married her husband, Private Michael Vineyard. And, um, you know, people described her as the most loving person anybody would ever meet. She was just a sweet, like, good-hearted, down-home kind of gal. 
and you know the first in her family to to move on up out of the mountains and marry the soldier and her future's bright and probably thinking like big starry eyed like you know I'm out of my small town home and yeah. Was well, she gonna? Were they gonna fool around the Vandenberg? Why did she go to the Vandenberg? Well, Warren <clears throat> alleged that she was like, yeah, we're gonna hook up. But, you know, who, who knows? I mean, he may have kidnapped her. Taken her there. Yeah, yeah, we don't know for sure. I mean, he says, oh, she went willingly with me. We were going to have yeah, sex. Yeah, don't trust him. But, uh, you know, he took her to his barracks. He strangled her. And then, you know, whatever. So, who knows? I mean, of course, he's not going to admit what he did. He's not going to tell the whole truth. So, um, I guess he sexually assaulted her as well. So I guess when they did find her body, you know, she had been strangled, sexually assaulted, but they kind of determined, I guess, that it wasn't consensual because they right. were describing it as sexual assault. And um, this was in 1987. So by the time he's 20 and he's, you know, got his first victim um, in the can there, he has a son and he said he felt left out because his wife's attention toward the baby, you know, He started, like, having issues, and he already has problems. And I guess that during that time, he was kind of feeling guilty for killing Patsy and started to kind of drop a few clues to his wife about what he had done. And he also just starts doing some erratic things as far as the military goes. He went AWOL from Fort Drum, wasn't showing up where he was supposed to be, didn't report for duty, that kind of stuff, gets picked up by the military police. Um, they find out he's stolen some items. He ends up getting convicted of larceny, unauthorized absence. He's confined to the base for 75 days. Uh, you know, has to pay a big fine, has to forfeit, you know, money. He's demoted from a specialist, uh, down to like a private first class. So just getting into some trouble. Um, once he returns back to the unit, which now they've sent him to Fort Benjamin in Indiana, he's only there for a week when he goes AWOL again and becomes this full-fledged deserter. So he just went totally off the rails, I guess, professionally. Yeah. Right? And then just in his life period, sounds like. So September of 1988, he's still, you know, he's 20 years old, still on the lam from the military. Um, he goes to New York City. He slept in those $5 a night flop houses, you know, with crackheads, prostitutes, um, started using cocaine, just hanging out, partying, doing drugs. And so it's shortly after that that he ends up getting a dishonorable discharge from the military and gets that deserter status confirmed, all that. So they kick him out. They send him packing. Well, it's right after that. August of 88, he claims that he met a woman named Mary, who was a Mexican immigrant worker, and says they had sex. And then he claims he woke up with her dead body beside him, but, like, he doesn't really give any details about how he killed her. So he's sleep killing. Yeah. I've heard of that. Yeah. And then he buried her in a field. But none of that's been confirmed. Like, they've never found her body. Oh. They don't know of this missing person, so. Okay. Yeah, but he claims that this is his second victim. Why in the hell would... Okay. Just well, he's, he's crazy. And this happened in New York. So, a few weeks later, 
he leaves New York, goes to Philadelphia, he gets arrested for vagrancy, gets put in jail. I mean, the guy just keeps getting in trouble, right? Then he um, takes his wife, his kid, and they move to uh, South Carolina. And at that time, splits up with his wife. They have an argument about drugs. I can't believe she stayed this long. I know. So she's like, you know, she's tired of the drugs, all that. And so they have this big fight. And she kicks him out, which would be probably a normal reaction for most women, right? So he moves back to Candler and becomes a cashier. And he lives only about a mile, I guess, from his mom's house. And there he starts dating a woman named Sandra Davis. And then he enrolls in this three-month training program for truck driving at uh, Alliance Truck Driving Center. And he thought if he got this good job, maybe as a truck driver, he had stability. He was making pretty decent money. Um, he could decrease his drug intake, all that, that he could win his wife back. Oh. So he really wants to, like, get his wife back. Okay. So he's trying to straighten up a little bit. Yeah. Not kill people. So then he gets back together with his wife and meets another woman, starts dating her. Hmm. And so while he's dating this other woman... Uh, her name is Bronya Owen B. He starts seeing his wife again on the side. And then he starts dating a 19-year-old. So he's juggling, you know, several ladies at once. Then he breaks up with Owen B. He gets dumped by the other girl. Starts dating the other girl's sister. Yeah. These are all great choices. Yeah. Well, then he becomes a qualified truck driver and gets a job. And, uh, you know, trying to get back with the wife all the while and then he is like telling his brother or stepbrother um this guy eric uh about all the sex he's been having in his truck um you know he's just hooking up with all these chicks then he claims during that time that he killed a guy named ronnie that he picked up one night and that he woke up in tennessee and had this dead body in his truck and had to dump it somewhere what? in the forest sleep killing again yeah this dude moves back in with his mom. I mean, he's just a hot mess. They're like, I don't know what you're going to do with all those dead bodies you're trying to bring back up in my house, Eugene. Yeah. Well, then he found out that his wife was pregnant with their second child. And so he's still trying oh, to, you know, so she's be part of that. Fucking his crazy ass. Yeah. So by this time, we're into 1989. He happens to come across this lady named Velma Faye Gray. She's a white female, she's 42, and she wrecked her car. And he happens to come by, sees this lady in distress, offers to help, picks her up. Once he gets her in the car, he beats her to death. Then he chokes her and, you know, dumps the body. And this is at Lake Bowen, which is down in Spartanburg. And a body eventually is found by a fisherman. And that's in 1989. And eventually there's a, a reward offered for information on this lady's death. And, you know, it keeps going up from 3000 eventually 5000 And so, you know, they're looking for this killer. But I guess at this time they haven't tied the first murder of the lady, the Patsy Vineyard, to, to this murder yet. Right. So these are the only two that they've been able to confirm, but he's claiming that there have been others. Because there was Mary, and then there's this guy, Ronnie, right. that he's just sleep-killing, I guess. Well, remember I mentioned the lady, uh, Elizabeth Hurley? Yeah. So Jamie Hurley, she's 39, and uh, they bump into each other 
Um, she ends up giving her number to Leslie. I guess she remembered him from when he was younger in that juvenile detention center. So they kind of re reunite whatever exchange phone numbers. So during this time, I mean, he's still, you know, seeing all these different ladies, got all this other love drama going on, moves in with his half-brother. He ends up buying this car. He hangs handcuffs on the mirror, thinking that that was, like, really cool. It's going to get him some... Or functional. Some ladies, I guess. Yeah, he can cuff them up and, and take them off and kill them. So he, um, you know, keeps thinking about this juvie counselor that gave him the phone number and eventually calls her up and she's found dead later. <laughs> yeah, he's like, yeah, he calls up. He's like, hey, it's Eugene. How you doing? She's like, oh, hey, Eugene. He's like, oh, what are you doing later? She's like, well, I don't know. What do you want to do? He's like, yeah, can I kill you later? Murder. <laughs> you want to get murdered later? Yeah. And she's like, oh, you going to tear this thing up, Eugene? He's like, oh, no, girl, I'm going to kill you. And well, she's like, you going to kill this thing, Eugene? Oh, my God. He's like, I'm going to end your life. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, pick me up at eight. So this is in 1990. And so he calls her up and he claims that they like stayed up all night doing cocaine, partying together. And then he decides to strangle her. Oh, so he's awake for this one. He's, he puts her in a stranglehold, baby. So, um, yeah. So after um, all of this has happened, uh, this is like May the 24th, 1990. He strangles this woman. The next day, his brother, Laren, asks him to go for a drive after work. Now, the whole time that he's hanging out with his brother, he's, like, thinking about Jamie's body, and he starts feeling kind of remorseful about what he's done. So, uh, he, he makes his brother, you know, drop him off so that he can go bury this body. That's interesting that he uh, shows regret and remorse, honestly. So he even left a marker on her grave where he buried her so he could go back and find it later. Because he's feeling pretty bad about all this. But not so bad that he can't go enjoy a nice picnic with his family. And stop killing The people. next day. So two days after he strangled this woman, he's having a picnic with his wife and kids and family and just living it up. And it's on this day that uh, Hurley's father, you know, reports her missing. So people are starting to notice, hey, she's she's not around. What's going on? And uh, eventually, he is taken into question uh, a couple of days later for, um, you know, Hurley's disappearance. And, um, you know, I guess they figure out that he's met up with her, phone calls, all that. So he's questioned, and they search his van. They find her purse, Hurley's purse. Um, they bring him in for another interview. He eventually took police to the side of the road where he dumped some of the belongings from her purse. And then he's placed under arrest for some outstanding warrant that he had for like a failure to produce a car title and also for the larceny of Hurley's pocketbook. Because they don't have a body, they think, oh, maybe he just stole her shit. Right. Or it also could be, uh, let's hold him on these other charges as long as we can while we, you know, get this thing going. So, you got to remember, this is May, like late May 1990. And so, June the 6th, his grandfather bails him out of jail. And so, the day he gets bailed out, he takes his wife and kids for a walk up the mountain where he's buried Hurley's body. And during that time, he points out the burial site and confesses everything to his wife. Well, this hiking trip just took a strange turn, Dad. Yeah. Well... 
his mother eventually is going to phone the police and say, you know, he's been linked to the Vineyard case back in 1987. So I guess he, um, you know, has confessed that he was part of that. So their family's starting to put the pieces together that, like, you know, hey, we've got a problem here with Leslie. See that over there, kids? That's a wild turkey. Well, See that over there? That's a shallow grave where I put my last victim. Well, you know, weeks after um, his family's ratting him out, he goes to the courthouse. He gets a brand new ID with his picture, but with the name Brian Allen Collins, which is his brother-in-law. Then he steals this black Kawasaki motorcycle and swaps tags with another bike. And so then he, you know, just goes out on the road, I guess, thinking he's going to, you know, skip town and get away with this stuff. Now, remember, he's out on bail and all that, right? So he left out and he, I guess he went looking for a friend, gets a hotel, gets drunk, can't drive. There's an officer that picks him up, gives him a ride back to the hotel. And, uh, you know, he's uh, just chilling out. Well, then he bumps into Katherine Johnson. Now, she's 21, and they spend the night drinking. They are in this hotel. They go out driving to some deserted soccer field. They have consensual sex. This is what I don't get. They check into a hotel, and then they leave to go have sex in a soccer field. Maybe I just want to do the voyeur outside thing, exhibitionist. Yeah, I'm like, is, that, is that your kink? I'm not kink-shaming, but whatever. Maybe like star sex. I just feel like, why would you spend the money? Like uh, save the thirty nine ninety nine. That's true. I mean? Go get thirty nine ninety nine dollars worth of liquors. Oh, I was thinking like chicken nuggets. Drugs or shovels and duct tape. <laughs> so they have the consensual. They have the sex, and then Warren chokes her to death, puts her body in the car, and then takes it back to the hotel, parks it. So during this time, like police issue this really dramatic like news release about this suspected serial killer they name leslie warren and his brother um leads police to the body so because, uh, because he's told his wife this is where i buried or whatever so right, all this right. is all coming out so he eventually you know has his brother take the police there they guard it overnight they start digging it up i mean it's like a big scene so eventually you know they find jamie hurley and they serve Warren with a warrant. They handcuff him, take him to the station. And he admits to choking Vineyard, Gray, Hurley, and this Catherine Johnson. And he says that he's killed up to eight people, maybe. I was going to say we're up to four or five, you know, kind of that we know of. Yeah. Right? So, you know, his mom goes to trial telling everybody about, you know, he had this detachment from this very early age. Yeah, yeah. He claims during the trial he's had frequent blackouts, memory loss. Right. Eventually, he's extradited down to South Carolina for killing Gray in the Sparkburg area. Um, you know, they do uh, psychological testing on him, and they say that he is totally sane. So he can't use that insanity defense, even though they're trying to build this case of like oh well he's been in and out of therapy and had all this childhood trauma and he even admitted to beating up a couple of guys dicks with his face what yeah okay it's true dylan you gotta stop chiming in on this stuff he's so crazy he's eventually you know brought to trial for the murder of gray then he's found guilty for that murder velma gray and then he pleads guilty in north carolina to the murder of jamie hurley and he's given the death sentence. 
And of course he appeals that. So we're getting into like the late nineties. So, you know, this is like some years later, appeals that eventually the U S Supreme court upholds his death sentence. And so we have four confirmed victims. He's claiming eight victims and you know, he's killing New York, North Carolina, South Carolina. And if he's a trucker and he's on the road, I mean, honestly, there could have been even more than eight people. There's no telling. But, you know, most serial killers want to brag or um, kind of uh, exaggerate the number and the victims and it's what true. they've done. Their legend, their lore. Exactly. So, I mean, if he's saying there's eight, then it really could be four. What is that rule about the people you've slept with? You, like, take that number and divide it by two or something? I haven't heard that rule. Oh, well, never mind. No, so I'm no, just thinking yeah, maybe that applies to serial killers, too. Like, you take the number of people that you've killed, that and you then you claim? multiply that by two ah, to get your, you know, your claim. I, I don't see. Know. So, yeah, he's in prison, uh, death row, and um, just chilling there, I guess. He's still there. Yeah, you, all these years later. Wow. You gotta love it. Mm-hmm. You gotta love it kept up by taxpayer money after killing all those people. But, you know, he's got some of the traits of a lot of these serial killers. I mean, he's had multiple jobs, fired from multiple jobs, um, you know, all over the place. He's done some trucking, but he's done a lot of odd jobs. He's often fired due to drugs and that kind of thing. Kind of couldn't keep the army thing going. Long statuses of being unemployed. I mean, he's you know, got these relationships, I guess, uh, with all these different women, but living this very transient kind of lifestyle, like one minute he's hanging out and living in his mom's and then he'll go live with like a brother or girlfriend, then goes back to his mom's house. I mean, it's just sort of like, you know, he's, he doesn't have a lot of stability in his life. Yeah. It's kind of interesting though. Like I said earlier, he was, uh, you know, not completely cold and, you know, empty of emotion like some serial killers are. Yeah, I mean, it does and, seem um, like he's got some yeah, feelings about what he's done. Regret, and, you know, like he would It's keep, like he does it and then later is like, oh, I shouldn't, you know. Oh, right. So, you know, not in the defense of him, but, you know, who he may have some kind of, you know, episodes of blackout or some kind of weird psychological thing going on. That like, doesn't excuse it, obviously. Compulsive behavior. But it's a little different than being there engaged the entire time and kind of doing this stuff to people. Well, you so. know, he's talked about a lot of the stuff that he did as a teenager because you got to remember he was extorting, making threats that he was going to rape people, breaking and entering, he's doing drugs, getting kicked out, out of, of control. Yeah. yeah. And he's later said that a lot of that was to get his mother's attention. Really? That he really was kind of doing, you know, anything, getting money, stealing, all that stuff. And it was just to try to get his mom's attention. Wow. Because I guess, you know, because he said, you know, from an early age, he felt very, like, disconnected from his parents and, like, that he wasn't, I guess, as cared for as his brother. Well, yeah, that's crazy that it quite possibly um, could have went all the way back to that, you know, being the time that sent him down that path of violence. And all those multiple relationships, like, almost like he was looking for something. That yeah. he could never find. Well, I mean, and it's pretty interesting to me, too, that he definitely seemed to have a victim type. I mean, they were all kind of young, good-looking women. But they were all friends and acquaintances. They weren't strangers. Right. So he was definitely, like, kind of praying to those that were close to him. 
um, killing in an area of, you know, like where he lived. It's not like he was going out of town and finding victims. I mean, he was just like, oh, hey, I live in the same town. I'm stationed with your husband. Let me murder you. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, maybe the cops, I don't know what they were working with or when they got all their information, but, you know, it's kind of surprising in the smaller communities here that maybe they didn't, um, you know, come upon him sooner. And all of them, I mean, he basically had some sort of contact with, you know, like through, you know, the military, I met you at this bar, uh, that kind of stuff. And really, Velma Gray is the only one that he random. didn't know. It was more of an opportunity situation that he took advantage of and had those abduction qualities of, like, he's trying to help her out. She's got a car wreck. He gets her in the car. Then, you know, he, like, kidnaps her, kills her. Yeah, see, that that one was more a little outside of his normal, you know, situations, like uh, some kind of a relationship or, you know, who knows what happened, lots of drugs and drinking, partying all night. That's a little more cold and uh, calculated there. So maybe, you know, maybe that kind of disproves a little bit what we were kind of laying out there. Like maybe it is some kind of psychological episode or or that Psychosis. he has some kind of pattern or something. Well, that's just cold. You know, he like, there wasn't an extended relationship or I don't know what happened. I woke up, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, drugs. and some of these victims, he's having consensual sex with. Right, right, exactly. But it's almost like he uh, needed to, like you said, he had the opportunity and he just wanted to kill. So, yeah, I guess he's just like uh, most other multiple killers. And the medical examiner uh, in several of these uh, cases of uh, autopsies with these victims said that it took probably about four minutes of pressure to strangle these victims. I guess they can kind of tell that from the victim's weight and a you know all that stuff. And so you got to think about it. That's not really quick and efficient. Like, that's it's not, not easy. An easy way to kill someone. It is not. So but... that's a you know the four minutes of that pressure and it's very hard that's gotta yeah that's gonna be pretty horrific people in the know say that that is not easy physically to do to someone it, it gives you all this time to it's not like you shoot them or you stab them and it's over and you're like oh my gosh you're looking literally watching the life drain out of them and uh, it's a lot of work well and the other part of that too is you know with a lot of these serial killers that you talk about they especially when they've got multiple victims they almost want the victims to be found. I mean, you right. think about someone like BTK. Oh, he was a total... He's like, put them on display. Media hog. I want you to see this. Look at my story. I want, yeah. Like, I'm creating I get some this. kind of sick pleasure out of, ah. um, you know, showing you what ah. I've done. To this day. But this guy, um, Leslie Warren, I mean, he tried to move. And hide these bodies. It wasn't like he just killed someone like, oh, hey, I'm going to leave you in this barracks where I've murdered you. It's like, no, no, no I'm going to take your body. I'm going to throw it in some water. I'm going to try right. to bury you. I'm going to try to get rid of the evidence. Right. Which I think goes back to that whole thing of like, I feel immediately guilty about what I've done. Right. So I need to hide this because I'm ashamed. Right. Rather than being proud of it. So that's a little different yeah. than your average serial killer. Yeah. Kind or of. I guess the ones we didn't know about. But, you know, hiding Hurley's body and leaving a marker so he would know where the body was, that almost makes me think of a lot of serial killers. How, like, it's almost like he wanted to go back to the body. He to, probably did. To, like, fantasize about what he had done or something. Or, yeah, somehow get reconnected to it. Yeah. Well, he's in Central Prison in Raleigh, 
and uh, I guess awaiting that death sentence if it ever comes. Yeah, it sounds like he's going to die of natural causes before it gets here. Yeah, I mean, you got to consider he was convicted in 93, and of course there's like the appeals process, but this is 2019. That's crazy. 26 years later, and he's still kicking it. Yeah, we may be missing a, a, someone at some point at getting knocked back down or something. That's a long time. So there you go, folks. That is the story of Leslie Eugene Warren, um, local Western North Carolina serial killer. And no offense to any Warrens out there. <laughs>